0: Welcome to the series premiere of MySpace with Malcolm. That's right, the very first episode. You are in on the ground floor and I'm so excited to have you with us today. My first interview is with Olumide Benro. Olumide is a dreamer, an entrepreneur, and an influencer. He's been at the forefront of the digital nomad space, as well as working through his no-rug agency to develop NFT projects all over the world. But I've known Olumide for over 10 years. We met in college, he was a groomsman at my wedding, and he's one of my best friends. I'm excited to share his journey of being born overseas, coming over to America, and having to learn a whole new culture, and then finding his way in the digital space. Take a listen to this interview with Olumide. Ladies and gentlemen, introduce to you the first guest, MySpace with Malcolm. Give it up for my friend Olumide or Olu Benro. Are you joining us from Bali? Are we in Bali today? Yes, I am. Bali, Indonesia. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's a nice, nice
1: morning here. Actually, there's a little bit of a sprinkle right now, but you know, the sun will be out today. I can guarantee it.
0: <laughs> so yeah, today we're yeah. just gonna talk about uh, a little bit about your journey. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to be a digital nomad and then we're going to help the people understand more about NFTs. Um, but first I I want to start off with your journey. Um, so let's start with your background. Now, I know you are kind of an international man of mystery. Where do you call home?
1: (laughs) Where do I call home? Right now, um, Bali is home, but I have places in, uh, you know, San Diego, California in, in America, but also Miami, because it's a place I recently visited that I really liked. Europe, mm-hmm. uh, places like uh, London, where I grew up and I spent a lot of my formative years as a little boy to a, to a young teenager before I moved to the U.S. So I think home for me has always been where, like, where I feel welcome and where I feel like I have friends, family, people that love me. And right now it's split into different places. I never felt, you know, Nigerian and British and American. Like, I always felt like when I was in these places, I was always uh, seen as somebody that was different than everybody else. So Mm -hmm. it never let me have like a foundation of, oh, I'm American, you know, because we'll get get into it. But I just feel as though my home is where uh, I'm welcome, where my family, friends, uh, you know, loved ones are, you know.
0: (laughs) Okay. So how long were you in
1: London? London um, was from age six to 13, six to 13 okay. when I was uh, a teenager. is when I moved to America. So yeah, about zero to six in Nigeria. I was born mm-hmm. in Nigeria, in Lagos, Lagos, Nigeria. And then from six to 13 in England, in London, England. And then from 13 to like early 20s in America before I started traveling. Okay.
0: <laughs> so what was that transition like coming from um Nigeria and from London and then coming to America How was that transition for you
1: it was tough because as a kid I think you don't understand you know that people are different they different languages different cultures so from going so going from Nigeria to England I was still a little boy so I think it's easier you don't understand the world as much and I was also I think Because I was also, uh, sorry, London is more uh, an immigrant-based city, right? Like, so there's Jamaicans, Nigerians, Ghanaians, Trinidadians, Irish, all these people coming into London. I just was a a crew of like a little gang of like all these immigrant kids. You know, we had like a kid called James. He was the the kid from... the only kid from England in the group, but he was he was cool, so he was in the group. We had a Sri Lankan kid. He was the one that was like, anytime something was gonna go down, he was the one we called into the group. So we had a dynamic group of kids that were like repping their nation and their uh, their origin. But then we're all just a family, and we all protected and took care of each other. And I was like a quiet little Nigerian new kid. Probably had to ask him like, "Hello, my name is Michael Olumide," and they were like, "Okay, we'll bring you into the crew." So I just had this thing where in England, it was a lot easier for the transition because of the uh, history of having a diverse group of people from around the world. When I got to America, however, so when I got to America, I had a a British accent now and uh, Eastside, Columbus, Ohio. You know, we're from from the O.H. Eastside was not kind to me. Eastside said, yo, yo, where you from? And you know, I was I was afraid to share who I was. They were the, the kids were just like, "Where where you from, bro? Where you from?" I was like, "I'm from here." They're like, "No, you ain't from here, bro." And I was like, at that point, I knew this was going to be a different experience. Yeah. At 13, I was like, "I better start learning how to speak like an American." I used to practice in front of the mirror. I literally practiced in front of the mirror my American accent. And I was like, "Water, no, water, wa- water, water." That was the one that copped me out every time. like yo england i mean you know man man, just come over here man yeah what is that you drink it what are you drinking over there what water water they got me so i had to practice the one thing i realized or i learned to survive in america was trying to fit in unfortunately we can talk about that in the future what that sort of effects that has on you as a young man or woman or person is like how do you fit how do you try to force yourself to fit into society? And that was the worst part. Was England to America made me feel like I had to fit into a specific box and I had to become a new person. I had to become. I, I learned what it was like to be black when I got to America. I didn't even know about this stuff. I was I was, in, I was in England, like, yeah, man, this is dope, fam. Yeah, man, you where you from, fam? You from Jamaica, fam? Oh yeah, fam. I'm from England. I'm from I'm I'm from Nigeria too. And then when you get to America, they're like, nope. This is what you're supposed to speak like. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the sport you're supposed to play. You ain't play. You ain't play football. You ain't play. Hey, why you ain't play football? Mm -hmm. You, You look fast, bro. I I don't like football. I like soccer. I'm I'm from Nigeria, so you start to get these conditionings on who you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to talk to, who's supposed to be your friend, who you're supposed to hate. And this machine that is America begins to kind of condition you, especially at a delicate age when you're a young teenager, when you have the most influence in your life. So that was it for me, man. It was a tough transition. Either way, always, and and either in all the times, we're also again immigrants and people who, let's say, my parents went through a lot of challenges of trying to get jobs, trying to get their degrees uh, certified in a new country that allowed them to earn money, so they couldn't really earn and and have a chance to really get that American dream that is so well publicized and marketed to the world. But what the truth is, is usually that American dream is reserved for the children of those immigrants. It's not for the immigrants they marketed to, to come to the the dreamland uh, of, of milk and honey. It's really for the kids and the children. So now I see it as my opportunity to, I'm thankful for my parents for, you know, the sacrifices they made despite challenges and things and that. I realized that they were doing a lot for us and for me and for the kids to basically have a chance to then make a choice to leave America, which we'll talk about, and to have a choice to have freedom because they made sacrifices. So yeah, man, it was a tough transition all around, trust me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a a tough thing for, I mean, even, you know, any kid really that is that othering that can happen in social spaces, you know, whether you're an immigrant or like, um, for me on a much smaller scale, I moved to Ohio from Oklahoma. And I had kind of a similar experience with people uh, yeah. call me, they called me Oklahoma when I first moved here. And I'm like, Oklahoma. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's witty. That's funny. This <laughs> is <You know? laughs> <Just> getting old. <laughs> right. And so it's, that's that, funny. that happens so often. So how do you think that? Yeah. How do you think that affected you? going, you know, growing up through school. I know obviously you come home and you have, um, you know, Nigerian parents who I'm sure Mm -hmm. really hold on to their own culture identity, but you're still kind of going through your own, discovering your your identity and doing that in a brand new place with brand new people.
1: Yeah, I I was very confused. Like I go Mm. home and I grew up in a traditional like Pentecostal Nigerian Christian family, no R-rated movies. So I'd go yes. home, I'd go to school and the school, my schoolmates would be like, yo, yo, Mike. Cause my name, my name's Illumide. But funny enough, I used to take on the identity of let me Europeanize my name or let me call yeah. myself Michael to fit in. So if I reference myself as Mike, this is what people called me. That's what you used to call me 10 years ago, right? right. Things have changed. So in, in yeah. school, I'd go to school and people would say, Hey, Mike, yo, we going to this movie. Uh, do you want us, do you want to come through, man? I'm, I'd be like, what rating is this movie? Is it R rated? You say? Uh-huh. <laughs> Even when I turned 16 or 17, I believe that's the R rating. I went home one day and I told my dad, I was like, Yeah, dad, I wanna um I wanna go to see a movie. He said, What rating is it? I was like, uh, I don't know. He's like, You don't know, you don't go. Wow. <laughs> so there was a juxtaposition <laughs> of culture, of expectations, high expectations yeah. of of doing well, being a good person, staying away from things that are perceived as bad and the uh, culture in which we were now embedded. And yeah. the life of trying to have my own friends and trying to blend in the culture and actually try to have fr- uh, 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 experiences. So there was a stark difference. I mean, I definitely am not afraid to say I was over oversheltered, over overprotected growing up, man, because yeah. I didn't see anything. I, I I literally, and I always share my story. I see it as more of a story of empowerment and and growth and and i don't want anyone to ever think that now i regret it or i'm angry i'm doing um work on this but i was just a kid that stayed in the basement i went to track practice when during Mm -hmm. spring spring of of uh of of, uh the season the spring season and every other season when i wasn't playing sports i literally went to school and i went to the basement and that was it Mm. i didn't grow up with friends because i was over sheltered over protected and but that's what my parents knew you know that that's all yeah. they knew in this new world new scary american world where people were getting killed and they had guns and pe- they, there was violence compared to other countries we would lived in um and for me yeah that was the experience of going to school and having friends versus uh, going home and you are in nigeria it's a funny joke in right. Canadians, like when you yeah. go in this house it is nigeria we're not in right. america that's how i felt it felt as if there was a, it was a sheriff in town. It was usually yeah. my dad and, 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 and this cultural reinforcement that I knew yeah. I better stick by the line. So I tell you what, man, it was extremely tough at the time growing up because I didn't feel like I had an outlet to express myself and mm. to be my true self. I thought everything was wrong. I, I didn't want to talk to girls at school because I was like, oh no, this is bad. I just was very quiet. in in high school, I didn't talk to anybody. This is up to age 16, 17. I didn't have friends. I didn't have people that I could, you know, say I could rely on or connect with. It was just me. And then, you know, went to church, went to Bible study, just played that role without having an expression of who I truly was. And, uh, I'm just I always say the truth and put it put it how it is this is this was a very tough time in my teenage years um and and now I look back I'm thankful because it, it saved me from a lot of different things actually but at the same time I see it as like you know what like you had that experience now as you grow older you have a chance to change and really experience life more
0: yeah I think that's you know it's it's a couple different things that I've- you know, I think that a lot of people experiences, especially coming from a family of immigrants, they're used to having kind of mm-hmm. that closed community where you're surrounded Absolutely. by people that you grew up with, family mm-hmm. members. Um, yeah. And so when you come to a brand new country, it's like, okay, it's hard to, you want your your child to grow and be, get assimilated and learn the culture. Exactly. But at the same time, when they come home, you're like, all right, we're closing this thing back down again.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah, it's confusing. It's like, you want me to like, go and get a a good education and and learn the culture and try to talk to these kids network make friends with teachers and stuff but like i'm also being told that like half of this stuff is not good like stay away from this don't talk to this you know and uh it's a tough situation i think a lot of people experience like you said you probably going from oklahoma to ohio was probably like what's up with the culture here like don't people respect their elders over here because i know in the south and other parts of america people are are very Conserved and respectful in certain ways, and then you get to mm-hmm. Ohio and
0: people are just wilding over there. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know? I, I grew up, I grew up on the East Coast, spent a lot, of, a lot of time okay. in New Jersey, New York, where it's oh, like a nice. melting pot. You have a yep. little bit of everybody there. So I was exactly. used to that, and then I came into Ohio, and it is not the same. Uh, in in Delaware, Ohio, <laughs> walk around your Delaware. Like, Whoa, you're like, okay, where, was, where's
1: everybody at? <laughs> <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> that's <is> so funny
0: <laughs> so fast forward a little bit we're gonna fast forward mm-hmm. to where we met which was at Ohio University if mm-hmm. I remember correctly we met on a Lynx visit um yeah before we had officially signed on I think it was you another friend of ours shout out to Chris Rush um oh, we yeah. met at the mm-hmm. college visit and we ended up staying friends
1: mm-hmm. throughout
0: uh yeah. all four years um yeah
1: That was crazy. I think we, we formed our band of brothers quickly. I mean, when I met you, I was just, it was just a a easy uh, connection, feeling like I met a brother someone who understood me instantly. We met at Ohio university, the classic party school. Funny enough, I went to that school because I wanted to party and get away from all this conservatism Uh and, you know, sleeping in the base, going to the basement and not having friends. And uh, that was a wild time where I thought I was coming in just to get lit and But i still held on to those funny enough those values and when i met you in the beginning i did when i met you i was like man this is so cool i can actually have a friend that also has similar values and makes me feel like you know what like everything's going to be okay and yeah that was a summer enrichment program where they basically brought all the like uh the the brown and black kids together that were supposed to be gifted and talented and we basically spent a whole summer hanging out and you know what i'm gonna get emotional bro that was when I felt like, Oh my God, I have a friend, you know, like yeah. I felt like I finally had people I could relate to. And it, that was when it started. It was the first time I felt like I had a friend. It was you. It was uh, Chris was a cool dude. It was Bryson Powers, another guy yeah. from, from Pittsburgh. And uh, I mean, I'm getting emotional because it's the first time, man, that I felt like, wow, okay. Thank God high school's over. I'm in college and I don't have to talk to my parents anymore. But most yeah. importantly, I feel like I have friends, you know what I mean? And I think that's a big deal and a big moment in a young man's life when you finally feel like you have other men, other males or guys that you can relate to and talk to about anything. And and yeah, yeah man, that that was that, those were the days, man. We did everything, man. We, we got out in the world and just had fun. And I felt like the yeah. first time in my life I had fun and I had friends. And so thank you for that, man. And just just warming up to me and and i was like wow the world can be a better place now
0: (laughs) you know i mean it's good like it's i think we all had that struggle in college like we're all you know we're all trying to find ourselves in some degree so we're testing our boundaries what can i you know i'm on my own for the first time what can i get away with what can i do you can kind of get lost in that but when you do i think i mean the same feeling you had about about you know our relationship was the same feeling I had is that I had somebody that we shared similar values if we're going to go out I know that I could trust him mm-hmm. um, and hopefully you felt mm-hmm. the same way about me like I could we're going to get in trouble we're not going to get crazy <laughs> Absolutely, if, if something goes down we got <laughs> back so that was like yep. that was really important for me in college because there were times it was dark and hard because I just I was not mm-hmm. about that super party life like just going yeah. out every weekend like you know we have fun but yeah. just you know, being a guy who grew up in a pastor's house, there's just some stuff yeah. we didn't do. Um, yeah. So you know, we went out. To, we went out places. We had a good time. We went to Club Evo. We went to Theta Chi <laughs> parties. We went to all we were of sneaking at all
1: sorts of places. Like should we, should, right. should we try this? One? Should we try door number two? Door number two. Door <laughs> yeah, it looks. So, it looks like we can get in. It looks like we can get it. All right, let's go. Let's get in. Let's get in. I remember those days. I remember. So yeah,
0: I mean it was it's it's important to find that community because that makes Absolutely. that makes any transition, any process a whole lot easier. So mm-hmm. um so when you came to OU, if I remember correctly, you were mm-hmm. you were originally looking into physical therapy, right? Yeah, I was doing physical therapy. And then I
1: I, I switched over to like pre med my parents, you know, mm-hmm. trying to be a doctor for my parents and stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, I, I basically switched over to exercise physiology. But then I was taking classes as if I was going to take the MCAT and be a doctor. I don't know, man, it right. was it was a time where you just do what you feel like you're supposed to do. So I was focused more on on health, I definitely still enjoyed elements of learning about physiology and health and, and uh, science and stuff. And uh, but it was hard, dude. Like these classes yeah. were were not a joke. So yeah, basically, I got my undergraduate in exercise physiology, um, which you either go into physical therapy or you can use that baseline science background to uh, explore, you know, higher level medical degree, dentistry, whatever it is that you want to do. So that's yeah. kind of the path I took.
0: Yeah. So. And then also before we before we make it to the pivot point, you were involved in sports. I remember, yeah. Uh, I think when <laughs> when we had the track team, you were, you ran track. I um, did. I did. And then try to do basketball and then this was after college but there was an olymp, there were some olympic aspirations in there too right
1: yeah i mean i i basically was just this overzealous excited (laughs) i can do everything so i tried Mm -hmm. everything first of all i mean i already i was already a a good talent a prospect uh from high school i did really well in track in high school long jump Mm -hmm. triple jump high jump sprints and so when Ohio University, I realized they had a track team, I went out for the track team and I got put on the track team, was in talks to actually get a scholarship. We all know what happened back then. Uh, they prioritized you know, sports to bring in a lot more money and they decided to remove the track team entirely. So yeah. right when I was thinking like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get some money and I'm gonna actually like, not have to use all this loan money to pay for school um, and my talent's gonna be recognized. They cut the track team and we didn't have any, I didn't have any funds to basically pay for books and things like that. So it was an interesting time. I always loved sports. I always loved uh, basketball, but I was never like you know, like the story, like I spoke about earlier. I arrived in America 13, 14. I was using my feet all the time and I realized mm-hmm. there was this thing called basketball. My friends, I didn't even know who Michael Jordan was till <laughs> wow. 2002 when I arrived in uh, Ohio. And that was Michael Jordan's retirement year. But I watched wow. all the tapes. I got all of the, you know, the red, the, the CDs with Michael Jordan's like history and career. You watched his highlights and everything. I watched all that the same year he retired <laughs> and I became a super fan of basketball. But by then it was too late because I had to develop that proprioceptive skill of dribbling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I still love basketball. And that's what we ended up doing too. After the track team ended, um, you and I and, and friends used to do pickup basketball and I still had that athleticism from track and from sports. And I used to dunk, and we used to throw me alley-oops. And we had the best of times playing sports, but I was so passionate about that. And when I got to college, uh, uh, grad school, I picked back track and field again because San Diego, where I ended up going to grad school, uh, has an Olympic training center. So you know what I okay. did? <laughs> I contacted one of the trainers and one of the athletes. He, he basically was an athlete, uh, Olympic athlete and he was also offering training. And he was basically teaching me different uh, disciplines because I wanted to do the decathlon. Let me show you how ambitious I was, but also how strategic I was. Being born in Nigeria and having Nigerian citizenship, the only way in my head, I figured out I could make the Olympics was to be in a discipline that I could represent Nigeria for that would be easier. What did I pick? The decathlon. Ain't nobody in Nigeria (laughs) doing the decathlon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the decathlon has, if anyone doesn't know the decathlon, there's 10 events. It's the long jump, shot put, discus, high jump, 1600 meters, 100 meters, 110 meter hurdles, 400 meter dash, javelin, all this crazy stuff. And three or four of them I'd never done before. So I said, I'm in San Diego for grad school. Why didn't I become an Olympian while I'm in a grueling school for wow. eight to 10 hours a day and I have to wake <laughs> up at 6 a.m every day let me add trying to be an olympian to that and by the way also be a content creator because i was documenting road to rio at the time it was the Rio olympics 2016. Yep. so yep. i was basically I making videos while in grad school full time trying to keep up these wow. grades and by the way i graduated with a 3.6 with the f cares whatever but i had a 3.6 <laughs> 3.7 crazy grades amazing grades follow the system while trying to achieve this dream of just i think in in the long term uh, when I think about it now it was actually just a, a, a whole history and life of trying to be recognized my friends. Like mm. I was going back on thinking about it now. I did so much because I just want somebody to love me for what I wow. was doing because I didn't feel like I had that love. Like I didn't feel like I had it for my father. I didn't feel like I had it growing up. I didn't have friends. I didn't show love. So I basically now that I think of it just to basically make the the bridge of connection, because that's what I love to do is just just tell these stories and and bring truth to help free people in their mind is I wanted to be the best uh, student to please my parents. Then I wanted to be uh, an Olympian to like please my country or my heritage or Mm. people that look like me. But I realized in the long run I was doing it because I didn't feel good enough. But in the long, in in the, in that moment in time, it still had some achieve, it still had some good, cool things. And basically, uh, I ended up training at the Olympic Training Center for over almost a year in San Diego, wow. uh, or it's training in general, I, I didn't go every day, but I had a, a trainer there, I was learning the most difficult thing for me was the javelin, or sorry, the, mm-hmm. the shot, the um, pole vault, where you hold the pole, okay. you run and you jump yep. over this thing with a pole in your hand, right. And that was mm-hmm. the one that I was training with this guy uh, all the time. But uh, what ended up happening was, again, when you try to do too much to impress other people, to feel better mm. about yourself, it pushes you and can harm you. I had a yeah. serious ankle injury that I've had two, two surgeries for because I literally had no ligaments left back when I was playing basketball with you and all the homies. You remember I used to sprain my ankle a lot? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I sprained my ankle so much, I lost all ligaments. And then I went to the, to try to be an Olympian with no ligaments and I was running wow. faster. I was jumping higher, but it was killing my ankle and my feet. Wow. And that's a testament to show, like, yo, know, some things aren't worth it. If I could go back, there's no mm. regrets. I would just not be doing all this extra stuff that never actually amounted to things because I was doing it anyway to try to make myself feel better. Oh, all mm. oh, these girls think I'm physically fit, and you know, now I'm an Olympian. They they, they respect or like like the fact that I'm uh, I'm achieving something, so I have a status. So I used to use that to try to express women because now, Hey, I'm an athlete. You want to date an Olympian. You want to be with Olympia. I'm fit baby. And so (laughs) all those things I was doing and it was working. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to lie. It was working, but that positive reinforcement eventually ended because those relationships never lasted. Those things that I used to do never fulfilled me. And I felt Mm. like, the whole time, like the lesson, God, the universe was teaching me like, yo, you need to work on you to bring your true self to the world. And I feel like now I'm finally getting there, but it took a long journey of doing all these things. While they were fun, while I love playing basketball with you, I didn't need to go try to make the basketball team at Ohio University. And then when I didn't make it, feel like I was dirt or feel like I was nothing because I put so much uh, value In trying to be somebody, Mm. you know, because I remember, I don't know, I think you were there, like we went to the tryouts for the basketball for the Ohio University basketball team and I I was like dunking a little bit and I was like, yeah, this is cool. But deep down inside also, I knew I wouldn't make it because it wasn't my purpose. Just like uh, uh, being an Olympian wasn't my purpose. I realized even being an Olympian, I would have probably made the Nigerian team if I was healthy. I would probably have only made twenty twenty five thousand dollars if I made uh, if I won a gold medal if I actually pre- uh, competed and did well because a lot of people don't know this athletes that are Olympians don't really get paid well the check for the mm-hmm. American gold medal is like forty thousand dollars so yeah. and then for other countries who aren't as developed too you don't seem to get a lot of money you have to get endorsements you're hustling it's like the yeah. old, old story of a minor league bat minor league baseball or, or uh, you know even like uh, people who play uh, hockey and stuff like that in, in certain leagues, soccer. I have friends that are professional basketball players and they make $65,000 a year. Fam, mm-hmm. you could also work somewhere else and make yeah. $65,000 a year. So <laughs> what, what is your, what, yeah, what is your purpose and why are you doing this? this is what is what I'm getting down to with these statements. And I've been talking for 10 minutes now, but my, my, my thing is why are you doing what you're doing? Um, if it's just to be recognized and feel loved by others and feel purpose, like you matter, there's a big problem there. you should probably look at your worth should come from within and and, and mm-hmm. the fact that you actually love yourself, and you're worthy of being yourself and being alive on this earth, everything else should be a bonus and your contribution. Um, but you should never base yourself worth on, you know, how much money you make, whether people think you're sexy, uh, you know, if you play sports, if you're smart, And man, it took me 30 years to figure this out. So I'm hoping somebody out there watching this is looking at this and saying, wait, something he said just clicked. Like, bruh, girl, whoever you are, guy, like realize that your worth shouldn't be based on your works and what you do physically. It should Mm -hmm. be your self-love should be there no matter what. And I struggled for that, like I said, my whole life trying to do all these things. And it ended up with a with a bad ankle and 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 psychosocial, emotional issues that I shouldn't have to deal with if I just realized that I shouldn't be basing my worth on these things. So anyway, I hope that that speaks to even one person and I'll be happy because all these things were amazing, great, but there was a lot of stress and challenges in it because of, you know, the reasons um, I was doing it was just to get love and attention, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's I mean, we. I think we all experience that, no matter what your background is or what you're doing. We all are on this journey to find um, that internal force, that internal reason why we why we do whatever it is that we do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, hearing your story, I think a lot of people can can identify with that because you know whether yeah. you're um, you know trying to go get a medical degree yeah. or whether you're trying to do community service work or work for a nonprofit no. or start your own business what is your internal motivation is a big question that you have to answer. Like, why am I doing yeah. this? Because that's going to be mm-hmm. the fuel that keeps you going, even when it gets difficult. Yeah, so, so for you, you talked about the, the injuries um, or the injury that really had developed over time. But what do you think was the mm-hmm. pivot point for you where you kind of started, maybe not fully, but started to move along toward the path that you're on now?
1: That was uh, probably after, funny enough, after uh, graduating from Ohio University, it took, took me five years <laughs> to be a four-year degree plus one. Um, uh-huh. So after I graduated, I basically decided like, hmm, what am I going to do with my life? In my head, I thought, okay, you could follow the path that your parents want, which is uh, get a, uh, an advanced degree, go into medical school, or, or become, um, you know, uh, uh, some sort of advanced uh version of this uh initial degree um but funny enough that's what i did but again this is my house now i was realizing yeah. that i wanted to do things a certain way um yeah. and i am the captain now that's what i was trying to say right <laughs> i basically that was my first like stripes where i was like you know what i just finished college you know what i moved into the my parents basement in the new house that they were living at and i was like Mm -hmm. man this is the same thing all over again i'm living in Mm -hmm. the basement and i have a degree that costs one hundred and eighty thousand dollars over four years whatever the heck it was and uh i still have to come back home and be in the same position and i didn't like it so for six months i sat there i applied for jobs man for the two for the two for the uh, uh the the winter that that came up uh, after college. I worked UPS in the snow with no gloves. Look at my hands. Do I look like I should be in the snow? Come on now, these hands, <laughs> these beautiful hands. Man, my hands froze like this. I went home like this, like why? But UPS was paying good that winter, you know what I'm saying? They yeah. made an extra bonus. So I was out uh-huh. there UPSing, But then when that ended, I I didn't have an opportunity to get jobs because, as you all know, with the college system, it's not how they advertise. It's not quite Mm -hmm. as easy to get a job. In other countries apart from America, they guarantee you get a job. First, you Mm -hmm. get a free education. Like places in Europe, you get a free education. And uh, you basically also get to um, get a guaranteed job because they're like, yo, we'll give you a job. Like job, you can have a job. But yeah. we know how it is in America, and how we we came out of school for me, at least for me, mm-hmm. in my experience, it was near impossible to get a job with just an exercise physiology degree because they expected mm-hmm. us to turn ourselves into personal trainers. But then you had to right. go into the gym and get a certification. So the system was all messed up. And I, I went home yep. and I said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. But I thought strategy wise, if my parents still encouraged me to why don't you get an advanced degree? I was like, you know what? Yeah, I will. I'll get a master's degree in california california that's when i get my butt (laughs) out of there i was like strategy i'm not staying in this basement and i'm not coming back home let's go further Mm -hmm. away let's go to cali so i applied for grad school in california in um for basically public health um to be a Mm -hmm. a public health scientist research scientist Mm -hmm. behavioral scientist where you basically help communities improve their health Certain communities have certain incidences of diseases, not genetically. That's all BS, by the way, because of behavior Mm -hmm. and what we eat and our mental health state and how what we allow into our environment where we live. So I decided to focus on that. I did that for uh, three years. The degree was two years. I did three, baby, plus one. But I but in this case, I actually ended up picking up two master's degrees because, again, overachiever, one is significance wanting to be the top of my class and basically tell everybody else yeah you guys you did one masters i did two and then but the, every time in my subconscious here's what i was doing and i realized that now i was just extending my timeline to figure out yeah. what i needed to do to have freedom i wanted freedom yeah. not just in my mind but in my life so i said every single time i'm when i look back now i extended to an extra year not just because i wanted to flex on everybody or say I had two master's degrees, that's definitely part of the ego that I formed during that time. But I also was buying time to figure out like, what is life really about? Like, do I really just want to be a professor, uh, you know, in California and like be this mm-hmm. dude that just drives his nice Lexus and then like has a mortgage like I just knew to me, no offense, it wasn't a fit for me. Lexus and mortgages are cool and owning homes getting a home is cool. But for me, I yearned to have some level of freedom that didn't uh, require me to work a nine to five or to be set Mm. in one place, constantly under the uh, influence of uh, an institution or somebody else telling me what I had to do or what I signed up for. So that was the switch for me, bro, when I went to California. And of course, I just played the game a little bit, went to school, got my good GPA, played the role, signed the docs, And five Mm -hmm. or three years later, when I graduated, uh, I had a choice and this was, I would say, the point that actually definitely put me in a position of break point or elevate and deal with the consequences, which was I had a chance to do a PhD after my master's degree at San Diego State University at another Mm -hmm. prominent university in California. This was basically, if I played along, this would have been a full ride to a PhD professor tenure research, scholar, this and that. And I went to even Uganda at the time to do HIV research that was fully funded by the U.S. government. Uh, They paid for everything, gave us a little extra change. And I said, listen, I'm in this system. I could have, and it it works for some people. And I think it's beautiful. Play the game, get the scholarship, do this thing, do that thing. And for me though, when I got that offer, my goodness, I, I, I felt so much repulsion to think that this would be my life. Like I would be, uh, I would be, trust me, I would have swagged it out, I would have been a prominent professor, like I'd be out there, you know what I'm saying? In the communities and stuff, I'll be making videos, clapping my hands, whatever it takes, baby. But I knew if I went that route, it would have been the easy route. I wanted a life of freedom, so what did I do? I said no to the PhD, to the, to the full ride, to the acclaim to the money, I probably would have been making over $100,000 easily within a few years, and even more depending on the research uh, funding I could bring into this university. But I said, you know what, nah, I don't need the money in the cushy job and the easy kind of path. I said, let me go ahead and go backpack in Europe with my German friends I met in grad school, and uh, couch surf sleep on couches around the world, and uh, become a digital nomad. (laughs) Oh, What a great idea, and be broke all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And that's,
0: I think that's where you kind of reemerged, like on social media, when you were talking about, start talking about being a digital nomad and what that meant. And so if you could, for the people at home, what, what does it mean to be a digital nomad?
1: Yeah, I think in a simple de- definition, digital nomad is somebody that can uh, live and work um, anywhere in the world because they have a, a laptop and connection to the internet. If you have connections to the internet, you can earn um, a living from, um, you know, your mobile device and you can, you're can you traveling the world while doing it. You mm-hmm. are a digital nomad. So it's a very simple definition. You Basically, if you can have some sort of gig where you can get paid for designing, programming, marketing. Anything at all um, that allows you to create that income. That's what uh, the world now affectionately calls digital nomads.
0: <laughs> and I think uh, the timing on it, you were really ahead of your time because obviously we just oh, absolutely. Out, of, out of this pandemic where everybody was yeah. a digital
1: nomad for like Everybody years. had to be a digital nomad, right? <laughs> like, dang, I, I need a, you know, can I get an upgraded laptop? I've never used a laptop in like 10 years. Yeah, like that. It got real, real fast. Yeah, this was maybe five or six years ago when yeah. I started. And it it was called couch surfing (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. right
1: and and basically what i realized at the time was year one which was five years ago uh uh, six years ago i think now sheesh seven years ago my goodness yeah i'm definitely up in there as one of the first because i'm thinking seven years ago nobody had had any idea and i didn't either so what happened was i realized when i was sleeping on my friend's couches yo You're running out of money. Uh, What are you going to do your UPS money running out, bro? The money you saved where I don't even know where you got this money. Maybe your parents sent you a little bit of money one time and you saved it up. It's running out. And you're not going to ask mommy and daddy because you told him you're not doing the PhD. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a dime from them. Sorry, you chose. You made that decision. So I started to realize like, okay, I'm getting a, a, a following on Instagram um from um dancing on statues in mexico city yes, <laughs> now man. i'm in uh, in germany and uh it's cold as heck and i'm sorry but i can't stay in these hostels where some of their uh uh like some of the rooms don't have really adequate heat and stuff and mm-hmm. you have to go to the reception all the time be like can you guys turn to eat and heat and you and they're like is i'm like I thought people spoke English in Germany, but anyway, but they see, and then she's like, "Oh, the heat. Okay, we'll we'll fix the heat. We'll fix the heat." And you're like, "Dang!" And I'm sleeping next to like five other people in like bunk beds. Anyway, long story short, the uh,
0: I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, we're talking about the digital nomad space, but like, I think okay, the- yes, yes.
1: So I basically end up end up uh, uh, in Germany, knowing that if I don't figure out how to make money from mm. Instagram yeah i'm gonna be homeless in germany yeah. now the, the system in germany ain't bad they actually give you a home funny enough they're oh, like wow. ah you know what we don't want you sleeping in the streets but i didn't want to be a, a a steward of a ward of, uh, yeah. of the state in germany yeah. without even being a, a person from there right it'd be just weird and I was like, I don't ever wanna be homeless, my God, please. <laughs> so I started to realize that people wanted to know how to grow on Instagram. This is also six, seven years, six ago, six years ago is where people realized Instagram could make you money. Yeah. So I was like, mm, now I've got 17,000 followers. I started this journey with 7,000 followers. Now I have 17, 18, 19. And for some reason, people were following my journey. I didn't know what a travel influencer was either back then. Uh-huh. I was a travel influencer. Although I was a broke backpacker, the world saw me <laughs> as a travel business influencer. <laughs> and so people were DMing me like, man, how did you grow? You know, any tips? And I was like, hmm, tips. No, no, no. You're going to tip me uh, $250 for a one-hour session, my friends. Yeah. And that's how I was able to initially get by. And I became a digital nomad that was making money from finally this online presence because I was like, you know what, if you want to learn how to make t- your first 10k followers, pay me $250. I'll take you through a one hour session. And I'll show you how I did it. Meanwhile, I didn't really know how I did it. I just knew people were following me and, and liking yep. and commenting. And I was figuring out I was watching YouTube videos and figuring out like how the algorithm works back then and, and how to create content, how to post, how to write captions. Mm-hmm. And so I was regurgitating this to people and they were paying me $250 for it. But I realized this was very temporary so i was like man i got to figure out something else yeah. and uh i started to learn about social media marketing like paid social media marketing and that's how, how i kind of started to develop more into uh creating a sustainable business rather than like hoping like man if i don't get this 250 today i don't have money to pay for my hostel and my yeah. homie said don't come back to Berlin, bro. You've been you stayed eleven days. <laughs> I don't have a room for you anymore. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I need to step up as a man and uh, figure out how to make this thing sustainable. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, I didn't make it sustainable. I had to fly back home with the last money I had and stay on my friend's couch, uh, a guy called Randy in San Diego. I'm, ba- I'm basically uh, figure it out from there in San Diego, mm-hmm. which. What happened was I ended up learning social media marketing, picking up two clients that paid me, I think 25 or $3,000 a month. And so then I started making $6,000 a month almost instantly. And I was like, I made it, I'm not broke anymore. (laughs) That was the moment where, when I realized that I was making that much money, which for some people is it's not still not a ton of money, but to be able to do that from a computer, I was like, what? yeah like i can make six to ten thousand dollars a month from a computer and i barely rolled out of bed that's when i knew this digital nomad digital entrepreneurship thing was real mm-hmm. and i realized that i'm sorry but actually the phd that i got but uh that I, that I could have gotten would have paid me the same when i realized that,
2: mm-hmm. that i make a hundred
1: thousand dollars working my butt off driving to school every day lecturing wow. the students which would have been good for some people. For me, I saw it as hell. Yeah, I made the same amount of money for my laptop, and I was rolling out of the couch, telling my homie like, "Yo, where are you headed?" And he's like, "Yeah, I gotta go do work." And he comes back and he's looking at me like, "Dude, I was. By the way, I was. Thank God bless you, Randy Lorenzo. I'm gonna add you back on Facebook, man. I know we had some issues. <laughs> it's fine. I love you, bro." But Randy came back home and was like, "Yo, what the heck are you doing? You haven't done anything." And I was like, mm, "I have not done anything. I made." Mean, today. So (laughs) I started realizing that if I'm making money online, doing less work, less time using my mind, using my skills, Mm -hmm. and other people are doing the same thing. And they don't realize it. That's what I also knew. Sorry, Randy, you didn't realize the potential of digital entrepreneurship, because guess what, I was making probably the same amount of money or same amount of money most people do working nine to five, rolling out of the couch. And so one day when I made enough money, I rolled off that couch and I said, thank you, Randy. I moved on and I moved to Mexico City. And that's where this digital nomad lifestyle for about two years started, where I went Mexico City to uh, Germany, back to Mexico City. And then where? Mm -hmm. To Bali, where I am today. And that's where I ended up, how I ended up here, where I was running a successful social media marketing agency. Um, And uh, rest is history. I, I really evolved it into kind of leaving the digital nomad lifestyle and turning into more of an investor and someone who is trying to now build wealth. So like my kids, kids and kids, kids, kids can eat like forever. And I evolved it into really learning business, learning how to build wealth and how to see things and trends, which I know we'll talk about the NFT stuff Mm -hmm. to where I knew that if I got into this space where I could actually create a lot of value for the world, money would never be an issue for me. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, I went from couch surfing, to established uh, digital entrepreneur, to advanced and future technology that allows me to have knowledge and and, uh, connections with people that are doing remarkable things that put me in a place uh, to actually continue to grow as a man and, and as a you know, in business as well.
0: Wow. I think you know I think the other thing, you know, you, you, earlier we talked about you try, kind of trying to find yourself. And I think one of the things that stuck mm-hmm. out to me on your journey, particularly watching it on social media, is that I didn't feel like anything you were doing was not authentic to you. Like I like yeah, you know, yeah, first thing exactly. that I, I remember is that we were at you if there's something on your mind that you wanted to do, like you would just do it and figure it out. Like I remember yeah. I remember in school uh, this might have been—I don't know if this was over a summer break or it might have been the year after I graduated. You're like, "Hey, I'm going on a mission trip to uh, to Honduras." Yeah, Honduras. Yeah. And I was like, Do "You have money for that?" And you're like, nah, <laughs> but I'll figure out, figure it out." And nah. then, sure enough, yeah. you found a exactly. way to get there, and you found a way to get back. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think one, yeah, good. I think that's. I think all all of these things that you're doing and telling your story. I think you're finding mm-hmm. yourself but it's al- always been organic and authentic to you or even the traveling even the the hustling yeah. that you had to do all of mm-hmm. those things i've never felt like it was too far off from your brand as as a person and from your yeah. personality as a person and i think i think that's when you think about how did you get 17 i mean even the dancing videos like you used to do that at ou before we were really Doing that on social media. You used to do right. that at OU. I was making
1: a video every day. Yeah. Every day. And I put it on YouTube and it got 17 views.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Every day I made a dance video. You remember that? Man. Yeah.
0: And now everybody it's is doing dancing videos. That's that's basically what TikTok right. is. Right. Now everybody, everybody on TikTok. I
1: was I was too early for TikTok, too yo. Early. I was too early. <laughs> Sometimes you're too early, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. So,
0: what what brought you particularly to Bali? I know you're kind of settled in Bali now. Yeah, it's kind of your Bali.
1: I mean, when I, I think I had a couple of friends that were here that they always post iconic. That's what brings everybody here. The exact yeah. photo of somebody with a coconut by the mm-hmm. beach. You're like, I want that life. Yeah. But I didn't just say, I want that life. I said, I'm going to get that life in the next two to three months. Mm. And so I knew that there were people here, a network of digital entrepreneurs, digital nomads who basically had figured something out. And I asked him and I asked a few people, it's a friend from Germany. Uh, I said, yo, but how are you doing this? She's like, I just left. I'd left Germany and came here. I'm like, but okay, but back up, back up, back up.
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: did you do before? Like, what is it? She's like, well, okay, well, yeah, well, I have, I do logos. Like I make logos. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You're making logos when you're not at the beach. Right. You can live here. Right. Now I get it. Well, I have a marketing agency i just made 6k this month it's coming another 6k next month um yeah i think i'm gonna make my way over but i was still scared fam. Yeah. like i was still like what if i go there and i lose these two clients uh that uh marissa gave, uh, basically I have, uh, my friend marissa shout out to you marissa if you're watching this i don't want it to always tell people's last name maybe they don't want it but anyway marissa uh-huh. shout out to you marissa helped me secure my first two clients uh-huh. and uh basically, when I had that money from the clients and I knew it was going to come in at least for three months. Cause I signed up for a three month minimum contract. Okay. Oh, we sign minimum contract. Yeah. I knew that I had three months to also figure it out. But mm-hmm. when I told my friend, she was like, he was like, yeah, you know, uh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. I was like, really? Like, what if I lose my clients? He's like, well, you've got three months just come through. Literally. If you figure it out, if you don't figure out, you can leave. But when I showed up, everything worked out. Yeah. I, by the way, again, it's never about like trying to be perfect and like, yeah, I, I did it right. Guess what? I lost those two clients. And I was like three months into Bali. I was like, man, I'm depressed. I have no mm-hmm. friends. I'm new here. And now I have no money or nothing coming in. And by the way, I was partying your lot and spending all that money, $18,000. <laughs> That's another story of like what I told you guys earlier about learning to put yourself in a position of loving yourself. Yeah. so you don't have to injure your ankle lose a bunch of money mm. you know have bad relationships and and so again i had a lot of growth from that but long story short i came through to bali because i saw that it was a quality lifestyle mm-hmm. i didn't even come to bali for the two reasons people usually come for spirituality to like meditate and learn about yeah. uh you know all this stuff and in, in spirituality in ubud and in this spiritual center here I didn't come to Bali because uh, I needed money. Like I was trying to you know, get a $200 a month uh, apartment. Mm-hmm. I came to Bali because I saw it as a place where I could basically uh, have a freedom of doing what I want when I want. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would have a chance to connect and meet friends who also had the similar mindset. So I came here for that. And yeah, it's been an amazing three years. Mm-hmm. First two years was Basically focused on my social media marketing agency, and I also had a PR agency,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I switched over to uh, you know NFTs and crypto and things like that. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so let's talk about these NFTs. Um, give us a give us as basic as you can. What is an NFT? Sure, sure.
1: Uh, an NFT is a certificate of ownership. Mm-hmm. So it's basically uh, a piece of code. Per se on the blockchain um, and and in in crypto in cryptocurrency where you have a code or identifying data set that says I am the only one that can uh, own this piece of code. Mm. So I'm breaking it down more technically because I think it's just also very important because yeah. people say NFT is just art uh, that's tradable and like makes you a bunch of money. No, NFT actually is a non fungible token. Non fungible fungible means it can be traded for other uh uh uh, values Mm -hmm. but non-fungible means you can only have one data one nft or one piece of art so if i own this one piece of art and this one nft because it's on the blockchain and a, a basic explanation of blockchain is you have a cement block and you put it down you put another cement block on top another one on top you can never change this cement block, which is my identifying cement block.
2: Mm-hmm. You can
1: never basically switch and sh- and no one can own this cement block or this part of the blockchain. So an mm-hmm. NFT is that piece of code that was layered at some point in time. And there's mm-hmm. other things another code on top that basically shows you that I own this block or I own this non-fungible token. Mm-hmm. So long story short, it's a certificate of ownership Meaning that if I own this piece of art or this code that is behind the art, that is the actual underlining foundation of the art, Mm -hmm. no one can say that, oh, that's my piece of art. Like everybody knows Picasso uh, paintings have been cloned and and fabricated and faked and been sold for millions of dollars because people couldn't tell that it was the original piece of art. Right Now on the blockchain, the most common way of... uh, nfts being traded is art why because if i have a piece of art that is an nft i own it and it shows on my account and nobody else can own it because it basically is tagged to that specific piece of code Mm. that's the brilliance in nfts where if you own something nobody else can own the value goes up why is fine art so valuable right because I have the one of one picasso and mm-hmm. you're never gonna own it and i paid 1.2 million dollars if you want it you got to pay 1.5 and historically art has been the, the the store of value and wealth for generations that's the one thing that doesn't change gas prices go up yeah <laughs> uh, uh, uh and and gas prices uh, uh, uh go crazy and sometimes you have no gas and there's no value in certain assets well art has always throughout history been a store of wealth in the wealthiest families in the world What do they all own apart from real estate art? Mm. And so now in the world of NFTs, everybody has a chance to own a piece of art that has value and that in the future may have increased value. Now, it's a bubble in a way. A lot of people Mm -hmm. get scammed. A lot of projects drop NFT collections of 10,000 different looking uh, apes, Bored Ape Yacht Club, that people who got there first because they understood that this was really cool technology They are now the OGs that own these 10,000 pieces of art. And those pieces of art are worth upwards of $100,000 each for this actual uh, ape you've probably seen aboard a yacht club. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it's a way of storing value and showing that uh, a single owner owns something. Mm -hmm. But in another way, it's a way of uh, collecting art and, um, you know, data. And then now it's like music. Uh, poetry, mm-hmm. uh, um, contracts, the basic premise is that if you own this, no one else can own it. And it's verifiable proof on the blockchain where I can go look up that block and say, hey, this person actually owns this. That's what gives it value.
0: OK, so in the case of a, a piece of art, say you brought an NFT mm-hmm. of of this piece of art. So does that mean that you can then reproduce it and like put it up in your house or something like that? Can you can you, yeah, you can you can
1: yeah uh, you could basically uh print it at the shop at the store you can uh-huh. put it on your wall and you can even have a little qr code or or the actual address where it's stored okay. uh, on the blockchain or or the the address that represents the uh, uh the, the the ownership mm-hmm. you can actually put it on the art as well to show that it's actually verifiable so i think the main area that people are are really using nfts as i said is art but it is, is also in an area of uh, generative art uh, that is, like I said, animals and, and mm-hmm. apes and, and, and cats. And people are basically the biggest area that NFTs that we should probably talk about then, as well as uh, the fact that it is based on uh, communities. Communities mm-hmm. who have similar values basically say, okay, I want to start a private club of investors uh, and, and entrepreneurs and call it Board Ape Yacht Club. And uh, everyone that owns this has access to something other people don't. Mm-hmm. So, with NFTs, you also have two primary areas not just the art, but the utilities. Mm-hmm. So, now if I own this art and this non fungible token, I basically have access to different things that other people don't have because I chose to buy into this limited collection of 10,000 different looking apes Mm. so that's the main area people got to understand apart from just art there's utilities which means that there's other elements of owning this that i get in addition to just staring at the art on the wall i get the art on the wall but also every year i get to uh i get to meet uh uh, professional uh soccer players because Mm i the nft represents a ticket to um uh, a soccer match every year for this particular team so NFTs can be used for anything that people want to make uh, scarce and want to have uh, a gated access to. Mm. NFTs can be uh, uh, concert tickets to your favorite artist that gives you access to backstage uh, passes. Uh-huh. Now people would say, like people would say, this: Why can't anybody just use a regular ticket to give someone backstage access passes? Well, there's something called royalties that's attached to this asset meaning when I buy it if it's for example a uh, five-year uh uh pass to Columbus crew uh mm-hmm. to the soccer matches and backstage passes mm-hmm. if I decide uh you know I don't want to I'm moving out of Columbus and I've used two year, two years out of the five years of my nft access pass to the Columbus mm-hmm. crew I have three years left but I can't use it I'm not in Columbus I can resell this nft to somebody else mm-hmm. and i make money matter of fact because columbus crew is now world champion or, or national ch- uh mls champion mm-hmm. the price that i bought the nft was a hundred dollars now it's a thousand dollars on the market for anyone who wants access to this uh skybox and to this season pass for the next three years so if i mm-hmm. sell it now i bought the nft for a hundred dollars if i sell it for a thousand i made nine hundred dollars and i got two years use out of it so mm-hmm. it's like okay i made money and i got value but here's the here's the the best part the owner and the person who started the nft project can set a royalty percentage on that uh ticket so Mm -hmm. imagine the columbus crew has an nft ticket and they set a 10 percent royalty on it that means when i sell the nft for a thousand dollars i make nine hundred dollars the original creator of the nft whether it's the artist whether it's a company or a business or individual person can keep 10% they can make an extra $100 from the they just basically sold two tickets for one yeah one year or two years later they made more money because the royalties get transferred into the owner the original owner of the nft so it's brilliant in that there's an element of both utility that people don't talk about often they think it's just dumb art but no there's extra extra value for having this nft the second thing is the royalties that people don't talk about where i'm sorry but if i sell a board ape uh, my board if i own board api club every time an nft average price right now a hundred thousand dollars every time they sell um um sorry they, they sell the NFT. someone else sells their nft that they made originally mm-hmm. if the royalties were set at 10 percent, i'd make ten thousand dollars every time that somebody sold this board eight wow so if you go look at the uh, royalties that Boyd club has made in the last year and a half in existence. They've made over forty four million dollars in royalties that's going into the pockets of the founders. It's three
0: dudes. Wow.
1: In a year and a half, forty four million dollars. And that's just from it. And
0: that's just from it changing, continuing to be purchased. And it kind that's of changed just
1: from royalties. Yeah. It's just wow. from royalties. The market itself. The market cap is over a billion dollars now so you have almost almost a billion dollars so in total people have traded a billion dollars in ape ape art
2: Mm, right
1: (laughs) but also that ape art ape art was one of the first ones to be released people see value long term holding it some people are probably holding that board ape for their grandchild to have it in their art collection and they're going to keep getting paid every time it's uh sold basically if you're the owner of a certain um, collection number of uh, number of the board ape so yeah that's why people are going crazy Now be careful like there's a lot of scams out there a lot of projects promise things you never yeah. get it it's 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 almost they always say this thing it is the greater fool theory
2: mm-hmm. it,
1: because somebody bought it first they're at an advantage yeah you invested in real estate mm-hmm. uh in bali in 1985 and it costs you a hundred bucks to buy this piece of land. Now that, that piece of land is worth a hundred thousand, 20 years later. Right. I got there first. Now you want it. Pay me what I want. Right. So be careful in that because a lot of projects don't just go buy any NFT. I'll tell you what one angle right now, if you're going to buy an NFT is look into the founders and look into the project itself, mm-hmm. look and see that the people are reputable that are actually um, Creating this NFT and for goodness sakes, stay away from projects that don't show you who the founders are. We call this mm. docs. If we say they aren't docs, it means that they aren't revealing their identity and we don't know who the heck these people are. Yeah. That means that when they mint their NFT, which means when you go buy the NFT the first time, when they mint the NFT, and when you mint their NFT for a thousand bucks and it goes into their private wallets, where again, because it's a blockchain, because the NFT. It's a string of code that identifies their account, not a name, not an identity. That's what mm. makes crypto so amazing. I can do anything I want, and nobody knows who the heck I am. I have privacy in my own wealth and sovereignty. Mm. The downside of that is that if, if you buy an NFT for $1,000 and the founders aren't showing you who they are, they don't have a LinkedIn, Twitter, they don't, you don't see their face. Yeah. They just run away with $16 million or the worst case of the NFT scam was $70 million. Some kid, 22-year-old kid created really cool graphics, marketed it really well. And when the project dropped, the art wasn't what he showed in the preview of this really cool video that looked super like digital, Sony, Mm Disney-like. The kid made $70 million. No one knows what he looks like. He said, bye-bye. That's the problem with the NFT space as well. You don't know who you're dealing with. You also don't know their execution and their promises. And uh, it's a challenge to basically find the right projects and the right art and the right person to invest in so you know you're not screwed in the future so that you can actually get the money's worth and the value
0: of these NFTs go up. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're going to wrap up the interview soon. But for just the regular person who's looking at this NFT market, seeing seeing some of the value in it, what is the easiest access point for them? What is the easiest way for them to to get in um, and and see a little bit of value from it?
1: I would say, first of all, we always have this concept, do your own research, Mm D-Y-O-R. The best thing that you can do is basically to look into projects, not financial advice, I'm not telling you how to invest your money, but Mm -hmm. look into projects that have already been established, like Board APIA Club, uh, uh, World of Women, which is a project that basically uh, was the first female-led, primarily female-led NFT project. Mm-hmm. Beautiful art showing diverse women from around the world, and like the colors, and 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 also they they have a uh, basically uh, emphasis on investing in artists and people mm-hmm. who have art that is not discovered. They buy the art, they invest. Um, look into world of women i'd say which is an nft project i'm not saying buy it but look into Mm -hmm. them and look into you can go on a website called OpenSea, c o p e n s e a open
2: sort
1: by the the all-time highest selling nft projects that have been here a year and a half two years Mm -hmm. and look at the ones that you like the art of but then also go to their websites and check what is their utilities Like I just explained what that is. What do you get apart from owning this art? Yeah. Sometimes it's good enough that I'll pay 500 bucks just to be part of a community because it's a community of investors or creative people. And I get to access a private network of a specific niche, which could also help me level up in my personal business. But all you need to do is basically look into the websites of these projects that are actually sustained over a year uh, with no controversy. And, uh, you can basically decide based on their utilities if you can afford it Mm -hmm. uh if it's something you want to invest in yeah the reason i I mentioned world of women and other projects even v friends from gary v is right now the crypto market and thus the nft market is down meaning all of these projects that let's say for example used to be a hundred thousand dollars for a mutant ape maybe it's twenty thousand dollars now and so you're in a position where if you're not going to lose all your money. And if, if, if investing in this and it going to zero doesn't make you broke, then yeah, you should check out projects that you're interested in because you see value in the utilities that they have, uh, that
0: they're sharing, you know, that's good. I mean, I, you know, hearing you kind of talk through it, it really sounds like it's, it's flipping the the creator economy over on its head where oh, you know, even, we've seen in music where people are complaining about not getting the royalties they need artists, not getting the compensation exactly. they feel like they deserve. And so this is an opportunity yep. for creatives and creators to, yep. to have this a authentication, a way to authenticate yep. what's real and what's not, but then also continue yep. to have income off of their intellectual property. So that's a, that's a wonderful, yep. beautiful thing that I think, um, we all should learn more about and, and try to get involved with.
1: Yeah, I think everyone should look into NFTs because in 10 years max, you, every ticket you buy to a major uh, brand or retailer, they're already doing it by the way, but under, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, yeah. uh, every ticket you buy to a major event will be an NFT. Like yeah. you wouldn't even realize it's an NFT at that point because you'll be scanning it on your phone. You'd be like, oh, it's like has all this code, but then yeah, there's a photo that shows it's a ticket. And Mm -hmm. literally, folks, NFTs will be a part of life. And by then, people like me, Malcolm, anyone who decides to check into it more, will be invested in the technologies and in the uh, IPs that are running these different softwares and these blockchains that people are on. And we'll be making money for our great grandchildren and building wealth. And you might not be if you don't look into it. That's all I'm saying. Because it just like the internet. Remember when the internet came out? It's this thing. You know, you go online, you plug in your computer, <laughs> and then you type in uh, an address, and it shows you some um, some um, some words and some photos, and then you can email. What's email? This is 1991, uh-huh. fam. We were awake and alive in 1991. What's email, John? Could you tell us what email is? What email is this thing where you know you send a letter in the mail, and you can actually do it. It goes up in the cloud. It goes in the air, and it just arrives in your computer. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, email, I, I think, do you think it's something that might get? ah, it's a fad, I don't know, why, why can't I just mail a regular letter? <laughs> well, it's faster. No, 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 no. I want to make sure my mom knows it's me mailing. What if somebody else mails, you know? So these things 20 years ago were complete, people made fun of it. And now a lot of people make fun of entities because they just don't get it. But 20 years from now, the people that bought the first servers for email, their family is worth mm, three to five billion dollars. Because they mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to invest in this technology figure out a way. There's people who bought certain domain names before the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. Yep. And some guys sold, uh, you know, paper.com for 5 million. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of different things that are valuable much many years later. So mm-hmm. I'd say check it out if you think that uh, you'd be interested in learning about the future of technology.
0: So, real quick before we leave, what's next for you? Uh, what projects are you working on? What things are you working on? Anything that you can let the people know yeah. uh, that you're up to?
1: Yeah. So, right now, I run a full time Web3 NFT marketing agency called No Rug Agency. So, you can go check us out at NoRugAgency.com. And basically, my f- firm focus is to help people learn about NFTs to invest in nfts in the right places but most importantly help them build powerful projects that bring together really cool global communities mm-hmm. so that they can actually be a part of this amazing rise in this technology um so i basically on a full-time basis now i run no rug agency and uh we're helping actually now thankfully major brands uh, get into the nft space yeah. uh you know luxury auto- automotors and and uh major movies and things like that i can't say their name but mm-hmm. you've seen these movies and these these uh you're aware of these brands thankfully now i'm stepping into a place where we're going to help them get into the nft space but we also like to help people who are um wanting to get into technology to help improve their business to help scale okay. their businesses so if you're someone looking to invest in learning and, and, and mm-hmm. investing in nfts so you can use NFTs to transform your business. You own, um, you know, a, a minor league baseball team. What if you sold your tickets as NFTs? So every time someone resold your five hundred dollar ticket, you made fifty bucks. We can help with that at No Rug Agency, right? If you're in real estate and you want to start selling um, um, access to Airbnbs, and if you want to even sell your real estate properties as, NF- as NFTs to a mm. billionaire crypto. Uh, investor in dubai that wants to buy a property in california for 1.2 million dollars and all he has to do is click a button of the nft which is a artistic photo that represents the home that you're trying to sell
2: mm-hmm. that's an
1: nft we can help with that as well so um, that's what we do i do full-time but also uh i'm helping people invest in real estate in bali as well on the side right now so if you're looking to invest in high roi producing uh, real estate in Bali where you can build a home for 300 to $400,000. And in three years or four years, you make that money back and you're rich forever
0: Hmm. uh,
1: because people are going to keep coming to Bali. Then you let me
0: know as well. (laughs) Awesome. So how do you you like people to connect with you? How can people connect with you if they want to learn more or just follow you on your journey? So
1: you can go, all my socials are Olumide underscore Benro. So you can basically go to my Instagram, my Twitter. It's the same Olumide Benro. If you Google me, you'll find me. Um, you'll see me on YouTube as well. Um, so just type my name and I'm sure you can put it in the, in the show notes. Uh, just Absolutely. find me Olumide underscore Benro on Instagram. Feel free to send me a DM, ask me questions. And uh, if you're serious about really leveling up with this NFTs or a real estate in Bali, I'm literally just here and waiting for you
0: awesome well thank you uh olu for joining us the first guest on myspace with malcolm excited about this conversation and hopefully some people can really take and learn from this
1: yeah thank you for the opportunity bro and i wish you the best and yeah everybody tune in malcolm is going to bring on some amazing guests i'll be watching as well so i'll see you next time thank you
0: Thank you again, Elubidae, for joining us on MySpace with Malcolm. I hope that you all learned something from this episode. I know I learned a lot about NFTs and how they're changing the creative economy all over the world. Real quick, before we leave, I would love for you to check out my company, Urban Arts Digital. That's the company that produces this show as well as other shows, including Let's Talk About It, that I host with my wife, Micah, and the Elusive Dream Podcast with Dr. Corey Little-Edwards and Pastor Rich Johnson. You can check us out at UrbanArtsDigital.com. You can see more about my show their shows and some other content that we have coming on the way you can also follow us on social media at urban arts digital on facebook and instagram and at urban arts dig on twitter you can follow me on instagram and twitter as well at malcolm dot media that's malcolm dot media on instagram and twitter well that's it thank you guys for joining us for myspace with malcolm we'll see you all next time